Well, good morning. It's good. Okay. Well, we've been walking through 1 Corinthians for the uh, past uh, few months, and we have arrived chapter 6, verse 12 through 20. This is where Paul is dealing with sexual immorality at the church in Corinth. But before we get uh, into the text, I want to go into a little background of the city and the culture and the lifestyle that some of these Christians at Corinth uh, once had. I think it's important in understanding uh, the problem of sexual um, immorality in this church and the struggles uh, to live consistent, pure, um, sexually pure lives. And their struggles are our struggles uh, today. And the instructional words to them um, from the Holy Spirit is also for us today. So a little background. Corinth uh, located on the Mediterranean and enjoyed a trade monopoly. It was a very wealthy trading center. And it was a Roman colony, and it attracted uh, Romans and Greeks and Jews from various parts of the Mediterranean world. And the city had many luxuries from all over the world. And with this came rampant um, immorality. The expression, to live like a Corinthian, to one Athenian writer meant living in gross immorality. Um, a Corinthian girl, the phrase, the Corinthian girl, refers to a prostitute. Um, those who were worldly wise used the verb Corinthianize to describe an act of immorality. So, the city had a reputation. Okay? Um, some modern cities, cities that may come to mind Maybe New Orleans, okay, the French quarters, Las Vegas, you know, or Amsterdam, or really any big city today. But during Paul's day, Corinth, uh, the Corinth was a relatively new city. The old city had been completely annihilated by the Romans in 146 BC. And this new Corinth was founded by uh, Julius Caesar as a Roman colony. And so this newly acquired wealth caused a lot of problems, created a lot of problems. Some authors say there was an absence of an established aristocracy. This is a form of government in which power is held by the elite and the privileged. And this may not seem like an ideal um, government, but uh, an established aristocracy in Corinth would have provided a much more stable society. One scholar wrote of Corinth, this mongrel and heterogeneous population of Greek adventurers, Roman bourgeois, with a tainting infusion of Phoenicians, this mass of Jews, ex-soldiers, philosophers, merchants, sailors, freedmen, slaves, tradespeople, hucksters, and agents of every form of vice without aristocracy, without traditions, and without a well-established citizens. Now, the old Corinth had the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, with the, uh, the, the cult um, prostitutes and this was called sacred prostitution. But most scholars uh, contend that uh, this, did not, uh, this was not present um, in the new Corinth. In Paul's day, many of the temple precincts hosted dinners after which prostitutes were made available. So this prostitution was, a part, was part of the festivities um, rather than having any ritual significance, and it was labeled temple prostitution. It was basically after-dinner entertainment. Uh, the Greeks had a proverb about the city which tells a great deal of its moral decay. It is not everyone who can afford a journey to Corinth. 
Someone once said a man with an obsession is a man who has very little sales resistance. So we're getting the picture here, right? Corinth had become known for promiscuity. And the very name became slang. To play the Corinthian was another way of talking about sex. So Paul's writing here to a very troubled church uh, in the midst of a very corrupt city and culture. The new church in Corinth obviously could not escape such of these strong outside influences, influences and needed encouragement and instruction on how to live godly lives. And they were struggling with sexual immorality while the surrounding culture was embracing it and encouraging it. Now that sounds familiar to us today. Yeah. It has been said that sex is a sacred trust with deliberate boundaries. It is one of the greatest gifts and one of the greatest struggles. And this is the same for us today. Malcolm Muggeridge, a British journalist, and later in life became outspoken on religious and moral issues, quoted, sex is a zots or substitute religion of the 20th century. Now, he died in 1990, but the same is true in our century. The Corinthian church Paul had established, we've already um, um, talked about, they were very diverse, okay? men, women, rich and poor. Uh, Paul describes them further. Not many were wise or influential of noble birth. They were arrogant, jealous, quarreling, worldly, mere infants in Christ, not ready for solid food, weak conscience. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preach, you put up with it easily enough. So they were just so immature. You know, they came out of terrible lifestyles. Um, we've already seen that earlier in chapter 6. Uh, Paul writes, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men with, who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Okay? So we have seen and will see in, uh, later on in the uh, letters that Paul's dealing with all kinds of issues. In this particular text, it's sexual immorality. But in others, he's de he, he has dealt with and will deal with divisions and lawsuits and marriage and pagan customs, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, numerous other subjects. They were a train wreck. But never forget, Paul considers them children of God. Okay. In his appeal, Paul emphasizes the implications of the gospel in everyday living in a pagan society. So... These letters were written to these recent converts from the lowest and depraved paganism. It was always practiced, so commonly practiced in Corinth. And the, uh, the culture created moral conditions in the church that even made the pagans blush. Okay? Paul addressed this in chapter 5 concerning uh, the case of the man sleeping with his father's wife. Yeah, so even pagans had lines they wouldn't cross, okay, apparently. But it, is not, it was just not easy for them to break with their past immorality. So combined with their spiritual immaturity, they needed patient yet firm instruction. And now let's read the text. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. You didn't think I'd ever get to it, I know. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permiss permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's body? 
So should I take part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For Scripture says the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with Him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Let's pray. Father, purify the eyes of our heart. Help us to keep the focus of our mind on on you. And develop in us, Father, thoughts and words and deeds and motives that are pure in your sight, that will honor your holy name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, let's go through um, the text. We have some principles here for sexual purity among Christians. In verse 12, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by any, anything. Some translations say all things are right for me or everything is lawful. But what is permitted here is not our only guide for behavior. Okay? This phrase, all things are permissible, occurs twice here and <clears throat> twice more in chapter 10 and is possibly a popular slogan. So these popular slogans that uh, Paul brings up, he's going to respond to. Okay? Um, They use this popular slogan, these Corinthian Christians, to justify their conduct. Paul had used this idea in his teaching um, about Christian liberty to the Colossians in chapter 2. And what he says there, when it comes to what we eat or drink, all things are lawful. I am at liberty and should not let anyone put me under bondage as legalists are prone to do. But not everything is beneficial. The Corinthian Christians took this idea some scholars say that things are lawful and permissible, and they applied this to areas Paul or the Lord never intended. Okay? They used their liberty as a license for sin um, to gratify their own desires, specifically here in the reference to a prostitute. Okay? The point seems to be that they thought they had the, the liberty to use the services of a prostitute. And you say, how can that, you know, how can that be? What, what kind of thinking, what kind of mindset uh, has that? Well, this was culturally accepted in the city. This is not an excuse now. We're not making excuses for them. But it was accepted in the religious community among religious pagans who saw nothing wrong in a religious person using a prostitute. And Paul responds to this slogan, but I will not be mastered or brought under the power of anything. In this phrase, he uses a verb. Um, he uh, uses it again only in later, um, later in chapter 7 in, in the context of a husband and wife having authority over each other's body. Paul may be saying, I will not be brought under the power of anybody as in the body of a prostitute. One scholar put it that Paul is using a play on words here. Okay? All things are in my power, but I shall not be overpowered by anything. So another principle for sexual purity among Christians, appetites for food and sex are not the same. In verse 13, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. You've got the slogan and then his response. 
However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So apparently these, these Christians here, um, they use the slogan to justify giving their bodies whatever their bodies wanted. Okay? My body wants food, so I eat. My body wants sex, so I hire a prostitute. What's the problem, Paul? Well, Paul's not buying this. He's, letting, um, letting, he's not going to let them take this slogan and apply it to irrelevant food restrictions that, that apply to irrelevant food rest restrictions and apply it to sexual immorality because the body is not for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. See, they may have tried to, to, to rationalize that because they have lustful sexual appetites, God had made their body for sexual immorality. But no, never, never, never. It was the sin that perverted the beauty of sex as God intended. We should never use our body in a way the Lord did not intend. One day, God will destroy our stomachs in the sense of being dependent on food and affected by hunger. Yet our bodies themselves and their moral character are relevant to our sexual conduct will be raised up by the Lord at resurrection. In verse 14, God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Verse 15 through 17. Don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's body? So I, should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For Scripture says the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined... In the, to the Lord is one with Him in spirit. So Paul is using just brilliant logic here um, to just strip away their, um, their beliefs, their pagan beliefs, immoral beliefs. So another principle we have here for sexual purity, our bodies are part of the body of Christ and so should never be joined with a prostitute. Do you not know? Okay? He uses this phrase, this question. Apparently many Corinthian Christians did not know. And this represents the sixth time in the letter Paul uses this phrase. There's, this is something they should have known. The question seems more, sounds more impatient as the letter goes on. The, this question occurs four times in the first 15 verses of chapter 6. So at this point, it is not a polite question, but it is a barely disguised rebuke. So they thought, these Corinthian Christians thought that their sexual conduct with prostitutes had no connection to their relationship with Jesus. The men saw nothing wrong with going to prostitutes because sex is only a bodily thing, not related to the life in the spirit and not an issue. Again, this was the prevailing culture, the belief in the culture um, in the Greco-Roman uh, Corinthian, Corinth. It was acceptable in this society for married men to have sex with women, not their wives, as long as the women were not married or with other men. That's probably why the pagans were shocked at, at the incest. Uh, but prostitutes and even slaves were considered available. And men could avail themselves of their services without being considered an adulterer or losing their standing, um, their honor, uh, their standing in the, uh, in the culture. It just... It, Seems to blow your mind, but this behavior was common and expected. Okay. While adultery with respectable women was a serious violation, brothels were acceptable and considered, considered beneficial. So this word he's using, porneia, 
was the term to describe prostitutes selling their bodies. For Paul, such a distinction between the body and the spirit and such, such an understanding of sexual immorality was completely unacceptable. For Paul, all sex outside of marriage, the marriage union reflected the fall and not God's good creation. And he's reminding them here, you, your bodies are members of Christ. When an individual Christian commits sexual immorality, it disgraces the entire body of Christ, linking the body of Christ to immorality. He appeals to the beauty of the sexual relationship that God intended in Genesis chapter 2. A husband and wife in their sexual relationship become one flesh in a way that is under God's blessing. God gave sex as a precious gift to mankind and he uses it powerfully to, to bond husband and wife together in a true one flesh relationship. In sex outside of marriage, the partners become one flesh in a way that is under God's curse, some scholars uh, contend, and I agree. In one night stands, okay, casual sex, the partners want to satisfy their carnal urges and don't intend to become one flesh, but Paul's arguing here, in a spiritual sense, they do. There's no such thing as free love. Ravi Zacharias says, free love is a contradiction in terms. A lover can never be free. It is the nature of love to bind itself. In Hebrews 13, we, we read, <clears throat> marriage is to be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, undefiled, because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. The sexual relationship between husband and wife is pure. It's holy and good before God. This biblical description of marriage is for one man and one woman in sacred commitment. So profound is this union. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Um, <clears throat> uh, I love allergies. <clears throat> so profound is this union that the relationship of God to the church bears this comparison. He is a bridegroom. The church is a bride. But sexual immorality works against this his good purpose for sex, working against this one true, one flesh relationship. This is what Paul is arguing, that sex outside of marriage may be exciting for a time, but it cannot be enriching. Having fulfilled what you think is your greatest desire will leave you empty. As some have said, when sex is only a momentary pleasure, when it offers nothing beyond itself, it brings no fulfillment. With infidelity, there is intimacy without intention, communion without commitment. One psychologist describes indulgence as short-term fleeting relationships with long-term bitter disappointments. And this is true of all behavior, of even sexual expression that is in rebellion to God's design. He has built this into us. Uh, Ravi Zacharias states, the perversion of sexuality starts with someone, with loving someone, somebody for yourself, and not for themselves. And how can you love anybody for themselves unless you love God first? For on that hang the law and the prophets, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That then defines the sanctity of every other relationship. So sexuality is a gift from God. If you violate the marital sanctity as God ordained it to be, you plunder it and lose the purpose for which it was given. 
Some of you may have heard of Paul Newman. Yeah, how is this relevant? Well, he was an actor and uh, a Hollywood icon, very handsome man, Uh, but he was married to uh, Joanne Woodward for 50 years. And this was extremely rare for a Hollywood couple. This man could have any woman he wanted, but he was well known uh, for his devotion to his wife and to his family. When once asked about his reputation for fidelity, he famously replied, why go out for a hamburger when you have steak at home? He also said that he never met anyone who had so much to lose as he did. In his profile on 60 Minutes, he admitted that he once um, left the house after a fight. Uh, He walked around outside for a while, but then came back to the front door, knocked on the front door, and explained to Joanne, I had nowhere to go. Here's a Spanish proverb um, written by uh, Anonymous. This guy writes a, a lot. A man who has loved many women has loved none. A man who has loved one woman has loved them all. It has been said, I, I think, I think it's, it's by Oz Guinness. I forgot to make the notation, but I think it was. He said that virginity is one of the most creative, releasing, purifying, and beautiful gifts which can be brought to Christian marriage. And it's not to shame anyone, but he says that if either partner is unable to bring such a contribution, his or her whole personhood is impaired, not irretrievably, because the redemptive power of Christ is able to make all things new. All right, continuing on. Paul says that since we belong to Jesus, body, soul, and spirit, we have no right to give part of ourselves to an unauthorized person. The Christian scholar Gordon Fee writes, by being joined to a prostitute in Pornia, a believer constitutes someone else outside of Christ as an unlawful Lord over one's own body. But he says in verse 17, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. We're united and joined to the Lord. In the heart of lustful passion, spiritual things may be far, seem far away from your mind. But at the root of most lustful passion is a desire for love, acceptance, and adventure, all of which is better and far more completely satisfied in this one spirit relationship with the Lord instead um, of with uh, sexual immorality. Verse 18, flee. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. A command for sexual purity. Flee. Don't push the limits. Don't flirt with it. Don't test yourself to see how much you can take. Don't rationalize. I'll just look quickly. As one writer said, reason not, but fly. We've got a great example from Scripture. Joseph. Genesis 39, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Now, the text says that Joseph was well-built and handsome. He was noticed by his master's wife, but refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. She hounded him day after day after day. Finally, one day, she grabbed his cloak, and he had to flee coming right out of it. So an application for us, 
Never try to be alone with a person of the opposite sex. Billy Graham said, made it a point to never be alone, never travel with another woman unless in the company of others. We need to realize in our struggles with sexual immorality what we're up against. Understand that there are forces that want to take you down. In James chapter 4, verse 7, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In 1 Peter 5, 8-9, through 9, Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Another example, a negative example, 2 Samuel 11, the story of, well-known story of David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of his palace. Why? He should have been out with his army. Okay. What is he doing? He knows what he's doing. He's looking for a chance. From the roof, he saw a very beautiful woman bathing. Now, she knew what she was doing, too. David should have fled. Was he already defeated when he walked up the stairs? Was David already halfway through the process of sin described in James chapter 1? Verse 13 through 15. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and He Himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after death, uh, desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Now we know David came back to God. But it was by the grace of God. Now I want to just say just a little bit of uh, some background on the Paul use, the word Paul uses here for sexual immorality in verse 18. I've already mentioned the word porneia, the classical Greek word for prostitute. But scholars go back and forth on this. They, uh, that this particular word uh, perhaps refers to a broad range of sexual sins. It is the root word of the English word pornography, which is derived from perneo, to sell off, a selling off or surrendering of sexual purity. But some interpret this word to include fornication and passionate lust, which would include viewing pornography. But most scholars agree that Paul is using this word in this context uh, to mean illicit sexual intercourse, adultery and unnatural intercourse. He's specifically using the term sexual immorality to deal with the issue in, um, in the Corinthian Christians, meaning they were going to prostitutes. However, the application of the word to pornography still applies. When you're in front of that computer screen, you are selling off, surrendering your sexual purity. And we, porn is sinful and damaging. And this, this, uh, the scriptures address the destructive nature of lust. Jesus says lust is adultery in your heart. But we'll come back to this um, in a minute. We're, uh, continuing on in verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. And this phrase, sins against his own body, Paul's not saying that sexual immorality is worse than any other sin, but it does teach that sexual sin has a unique effect on the body. 
the effect in physical, but also moral and spiritual. And he concludes the chapter with verses 19 through 20. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Do you not know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? The Greek word for temple is naos, a dwelling place of God, specifically the most holy place or inner sanctum. The body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple is a place sacred to God. It is a place pure from immorality. He's saying don't pollute God's temple. Earlier in chapter 3, Paul wrote that um, that the church as a whole is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But now he says the same is true in a spiritual sense of individual Christians. The body is God's property and uh, and for God's glory. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Our bodies belong to God. That's the principle. You have no right to abuse God's property. And as he concludes in verse 20, for you were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. Another principle of sexual purity among Christians. Glorify God with your body. Don't be idle or wasteful with your body. Charles Charles Spurgeon wrote, Your body was a willing horse when it was in the devil of the service. Let it not be a sluggish hack now that it draws the chariot of Christ. We've seen in in these letters that God can bring people out of horrible backgrounds and lifestyles. But there still may be consequences and struggles. It can be physical, emotional, and spiritual. The Spirit can provide healing, but some of these struggles can haunt you the rest of your life. Some effects of illicit sex can never be undone. Of course, they can be forgiven. Memories, emotions, attachments stay with us our whole life. Although excessive promiscuity can eventually dull or numb our senses in in certain ways. So don't flirt or indulge with sexual immorality especially while you're young, okay? Um, and think you will uh, get right later. I've heard it said that, uh, and maybe I've said this, I, perhaps, I'm going to sow my wild oats in college and work on my testimony. No. In the Amish religion, the teenagers who are not church members yet, uh, they go through what is called rumspringa. Okay? That literally means running around. The church fathers, they, know they don't condone this, but they turn their heads and let them sow their wild oats and get it out of their system before they become strict members. Okay? This is not a good idea. Okay? God can redeem you from, um, from your sins, but these temptations can haunt you and dog you the rest of your life. And even though the Corinthian Christians were struggling, they were, they were receiving some strong words from Paul, but they still needed to be reminded of the certainty of their salvation. It doesn't rest with them, but in the one who called them, and the one who will complete all that he has done. So, if this is you today, if sexual immorality defines your life, your, your secret life, there's hope. The church is not a place, and I'm not considered a building, but the body of believers. It's not a place where we go to escape sin, but to confront our sin and repent and stimulate each other to love and good deeds. 
The church, as some writer said, the church is not a clean room where we can get away from sin. It's a hospital where we can find help and healing. The church is not a place which is kept holy by keeping sinners away. It's a place where sinners are brought to learn from the Scriptures and grow in the faith. If there was hope for the Corinthian Christians, there is hope for anyone. The first nine verses of the letter saturated with hope. If there's hope for the lost, there's also hope for those who are saved but fall short, and we all fall short. This was a church that seemed completely beyond hope. Have you ever felt that way? Okay. Have you ever felt that you were beyond hope, beyond hope in your fight against sexual immorality and lust? This letter reminds us of the character and work of God in the saints through the work of His Son, Jesus. Cease trusting in your good intentions, your efforts, and once again place your trust in the One who can save and sanctify. Recognize our broken and wicked heart. Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, before he died, he, uh, he told this story to Ravi Zacharias, and, and then Ravi Zacharias uh, put this in one of his books with permission. But Malcolm Muggeridge relates this story that working as a journalist in India, he went out for one evening for a swim. As he entered the water across the river, he saw an Indian woman from a nearby village who had come to have her bath. Muggeridge impulsively felt the allurement of the moment, and temptation stormed into his mind. He had lived with this kind of struggle for years, but had somehow forgot, for, I'm sorry, somehow fought it off in honor of his commitment uh, to his wife. But on this occasion, however, he wondered if he could cross the line of marital fidelity. He struggled just for a moment and then swam furiously toward the woman literally trying to outdistance his conscience. His mind fed him the fantasy that stolen waters would be sweet, and he swam harder for it. Now he was just two or three feet away from her, and as he emerged from the water, any emotion that may have gripped him paled into insignificance when compared with the devastation that shattered him as he looked at her. She was old and hideous, and her skin was wrinkled, and worst of all, she was a leper. This creature grinned at me, he said, showing a toothless mask. The experience left Muggeridge trembling and muttering under his breath. What a dirty, lecherous woman. But then the rude shock of it dawned on him. It was not the woman who was lecherous. It was his own heart. He needed a redeemer. I want to... Uh, just step back and, and address a little bit of uh, the, the problem of pornography. Um, I'm going to read you some ec excerpts from an excerpt of a book by Mo Isom. Now, this is a woman who was immersed in pornography. And her book, Sex, Jesus, and the Conversations the Church Forgot, um, I haven't read it, but I have read excerpts and listened to uh, numerous uh, interviews. But this is Jesus' Jesus's compassion for those who love porn. And we've seen that. Corinthian church, the Corinthian Christians here, um, God can bring anybody out of um, a lifestyle and into his family. But she, she writes, Jesus can stare right at your sexual brokenness, 
filth and defiled body and redeem you. It's a radical love. He met the woman at the well and offered her living water. He cast no stone at the guilty adulteress. Rahab the prostitute was used by God and is in the lineage of the uh, Messiah. And she goes on to say that Jesus walked this earth, he saw the crowds, and he had compassion on them. He saw the desperation of their impure hearts um, that didn't even know the depth of their own depravity. His love for them revealed the deep mercy of God. And she, she goes on to say that, you know, our society is feeding off our sin inclinations. Our, we're easily addicted. Okay? We're harassed by overexposure to sexual material. We are one click away from anything. We're blinded by images that muddy the clear vision of God's desire for purity. But even in your most darkest and most secret life, Jesus meets us with compassion, extends His grace, extends salvation, and refuses us to be the same. He doesn't just keep us there. So when we invite the Holy Spirit to censor our lives and make sensitive our eyes, His response changes our vision. Sexual overexposure changes the way we think about people. Humans become objects body parts. Individuals made in the image of God become things to be used rather than loved. And we're capable of being desensitized, dehumanizing others for our own sexual fulfillment, which is what pornography does. We are harming others. We're bringing all of those around us down with us and draining the soul of vitality. She concludes, but when you begin to fight to reclaim your sight, and set our gaze on things that are holy, you begin to see the beauty of God's design for sex. You begin to understand sexual sin breaks his heart. So guard our eyes and hearts fiercely. Who are you? You're Christ's. Your identity dictates behavior. Dietrich Bonhoeffer on lust and purity and the cost of discipleship writes... Instead of trusting in the unseen, we prefer the tangible fruits of desire. As so, we fall from the path of discipleship and lose touch with Jesus. The gains of lust are trivial compared with the loss it brings. You forfeit your body eternally for the momentary pleasure of eye or hand. And we are placed in position when there, where there is no alternative but to obey. Jesus does not impose intolerable restrictions on his disciples. He does not forbid them to look at anything, but bids them to look on him. If you've ever read um, his uh, um, letters from cell 92, um, he was engaged to uh, Maria von Wiedemheil, and um, of course they never uh, were able to marry because he was executed. But the letters are beautiful. Just talk about pure love, and pure commitment. So I I highly recommend that particular book, Love Letters from Cell 92 by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We're going to end with some words of truth from, from Psalms. 101, verse 3, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. In Philippians 4, if we are what we see, may we fight to reclaim our sight and set our gaze on things that are noble, true, and holy. May we fix our eyes on Jesus. Paul's 
begging you to do. The one whose love has a power, Jesus, the one whose, whose love has a power to give us new eyes, new hearts, and a new vision toward a world that is broken and hurting. Fight the good fight. Paul is going to say later in, in chapter 10, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He will provide a way out. I'll conclude with three verses. One, Romans 6, 12 through 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourself to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. In Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true worship. And finally, Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Let's pray. Father, you have given us bodies to keep pure and clean and healthy for your service and our eternal happiness. Forgive us all of our unfaithfulness in this great responsibility. Forgive us for every evil use which we have made of your gifts in thought, word, or deed. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and give us a steadfast will that we may be a strength to others around us. May our bodies be the servant of our soul, and may both body and soul be your servants. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.